Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, July 19th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, uh, National Review writer, author of the brilliant memoir, My Father Gave Me Ireland, Michael Brendan Doherty. Hi, Michael. How are you? Hi, everyone. First time, long time, as they say in the radio business. Yes. Uh, now, of course, uh, you may know him as uh, as the notorious MBD, as he is referred yeah. to on the editor's podcast at National Review. Um so I, I'm just going to call you Michael, unless That's you perfect. want me to call you MD. Okay, great. Um, and uh, Michael uh, produced a uh, a piece that was published on Friday uh, on National Review Online called "Convincing the Skeptics," and it's a very, very interesting and flavored view of this problem of vaccine hesitancy and what we should do about it and because it is because it is uh, complex and uh, hard to sum up in five words it, he was trashed within an inch of his life on friday on twitter and elsewhere and accused of all sorts of crimes against uh humanity and i will say that uh the 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 ideas that he expressed in this piece uh, he and I have have uh, briefly uh, exchanged offline uh, uh, by email uh, over the course of the last six or seven months, uh, having to do with what to do about people whose attitudes toward the vaccines or vaccination generally are more hesitant than uh, embracing. And as people know, listening to me over the last month, I've lost my patience and lost my temper uh, in relation to this whole question. And I, t I took uh, Michael's uh, piece as a refreshing counterpoise to my own, you're all idiots and get vaccinated or die attitude. So I thought uh, I'd invite him uh, on the show today. We talk him today about his ideas about what to do about this problem so that is my introduction take it away mr doherty so i wrote this piece because um i have lots of friends and family who are hesitant about the vaccine for one reason or another and we talk about it and some of the reasons i think you know i can understand and some of them you know maybe less so and what I noticed was that none of the discussion publicly among people like us tended to speak to them where they are. And even the campaigns, the public messaging campaigns n were not addressed to them in any significant way uh, and not really addressed to their concerns. And in fact, seemed to me and to them counterproductive in that it seemed like the um, you know, the commercials that run during baseball broadcasts or things like that almost conspicuously avoid the, th the topics that skeptics most often bring up and don't address the root cause uh, of their skepticism or hesitancy about the vaccine. 
And further, like in, in our circles, people that write about this as a public issue, the dominant theme is um, vaccine skeptics are being manipulated by Tucker Carlson and Alex Berenson. Uh, and we got to crush the sources of disinformation up the, the campaign of censorship uh, and censure. And that's how we'll solve this problem. I don't think that's actually, I think that would be also hugely counterproductive because when I talk to skeptics, censorship uh, raises their hackles. They think this makes me more suspicious, the fact that you're trying to ban discussion uh, of this. Uh, you wouldn't be doing that unless there was something wrong, especially when you're not addressing my main objection. So what are, the main objection that I hear from vaccine skeptics basically runs this way. It's the simplest way to understand it of all. I'm not afraid of COVID. I am not afraid of it as maybe you are. Uh, I am uncertain about this vaccine. So I am more fearful of the vaccine than I am of COVID. That's, that covers most anti-vaxxers. Um, they have a variety of reasons for thinking this. Some of them among, you know, my friends, they would be stated like, um, I already had COVID and I got over it in two days. I, ha I have T-cell immunity. Why is my boss, why is my company trying to pressure me to take this vaccine. I'm immune. I've already had this. I don't need to take this risk. I'm fine being the control experiment. Or, um, you know, they might have some other medical thing in their life. It could be, I'm thinking of getting pregnant this year. Uh, or uh, my father has kind of paradoxical reactions to drugs. So I'm, a lot more uncertain and the fact that there's no long-term testing and I know there can't be long-term testing on a vaccine during a pandemic, um, you know, I'm uncertain. And because, you know, 99% of people or, or greater survive COVID, I just don't want to take it. Why are you making me take it? And further, you know, they have this built up distrust of uh, the media and public health authorities, which I feel has been well-documented and shared on the Commentary Daily podcast that public health authorities regularly say stupid things and that in this they've tended to overhype the dangers, right? To not recognize quickly that, you know, outdoor transmission is rare or that children are not at serious risk. Uh, and so when you combine all of that together, that is what produces, I think, most vaccine skepticism is, you know, there'll be some decision and it, usually it was made last year that I am not that afraid of COVID. Um, and I find a lot of the, the, just the public talk about this phenomenon will just refuse to grapple with this worldview. They'll say like, well, you're not doing your civic duty you know, we're trying to get out of these restrictions and you're holding us back. And the vaccine skeptic would think, no, it's your excessive fear of this disease that's the cause of these restrictions on business. I am trying to model a life 
unruled by this fear. And P.S., if you think the vaccines give you 100% protection against death, you take them. You don't have to be afraid of me. So don't make me take them. Um, And so that's, that's kind of what I get. And when you see all these public health messages, millions of dollars being spent, not quite grasping the worldview that it's it's trying to talk to it just seems like a waste and into the into the vax skeptics themselves it seems sinister in some way um and and that just like i said adds to this general suspicion um and you know for some people like i will be totally frank i kind of sympathize with some of the the people objecting you know a person that says I already had COVID. I got over it in two days. I had a 101 fever. Um, you know, why am I doing this? I have a friend who is, um, you know, I'm trying not to give it away. I'm sure if they listen to this, they'll know who I'm, I'm talking about. But I have a very close friend for a long time who was raised a Christian scientist. He's never been vaccinated for anything. He doesn't practice Christian science as an adult exactly, but this is just sort of an inherited thing in him and he feels he's being manipulated by his employer to get a vaccine or to file a religious objection to it and he thinks "Eh, my objection isn't exactly religious and yet they're saying if i don't get vaxxed tell them i'm vaxxed or file this objection by a certain date hr is going to have a talk with me about whether my position is um tenable at the company any longer um and he feels like if you're if you're afraid, you can get this vax. Uh, my own view is that you know some of these vax resistant people in my own life, they're pro vax for their parents, right? My parents over sixty five. I not only got him vaxed, but made him get a T cell test uh, to make sure that he developed immunity from the vaccine. But I'm you know thirty five. I'm healthy, and I have other priorities. And, or, uh, I'm really uncertain and I've heard things like, one other thing that I think is underappreciated is that commentators overrate Tucker Carlson or Alex Berenson's influence, whereas most of the vaccine skeptics in my life don't even have cable television. They don't, they don't even watch this. They're on Instagram And they maybe follow a couple of other accounts or friends and they will share things like, hey, here's someone who had an adverse reaction and the doctors are telling them it's not, it couldn't be the vaccine. Um, And, 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 um, you know, so my advice, and I'm going to wrap up this monologue shortly. Uh, My advice is that at this point, a public health messaging campaign should emphasize the limits of its knowledge almost with reckless candor and say, yeah, you're absolutely right. There are no long-term studies. Um, so when you say that you're totally right, you, you're not misinformed, you're not, you don't have misinformation, but here is say a medical, a medically plausible reason for why you should believe the chance of a long-term side effect that pops up years from now is such a remote possibility that you don't have to worry about it. Just say that. Um, 
you know, that I think would go a lot further than what we're doing currently. So that's, that is basically where I am. And then the last thing I'll say is, um, I didn't mean the, the, the piece I wrote to be a test, but I'm worried that it is, has been a test, which is that if you are unwilling to meet these people where they are, right, the hesitant, uh, and contextualize the information they've absorbed, and some of them are super high information people, um, if you cherish your just animosities towards them uh, it, more than uh, you cherish the campaign to reach out to them and get them vaxxed, maybe you yourself aren't as afraid of people being unvaxxed as you claim to be. Like, maybe you actually are fine. Like you said, John, go ahead and die. That's on you. Like, right. that actually well, is a more reasonable response, uh, I think, than saying, go to hell, you stupid idiot. Just get vaxxed. Like, that's, that's right. just going well, to Well, he says that too, just to be clear. Well, I do, but, <laughs> but, but so diagnostically, I think what you are suggesting is that this is a reasoned and reasonable position that the people that you know are taking. And I don't see how after seven months of uh, the vaccine regime that can be altered. So what you might actually be preaching here is stop the public information campaign. It's over. People, well, the people who believe it, believe it. The people who don't, don't. You're not going to convince people who have a seemingly reasonable objection to vaccination. You're talking about literate, intelligent people who aren't being driven by misinformation. They have, they have a considered view, and their considered view is hit this point, and uh, everything that's going on now may only be driving them further away from vaccination, but it's not quite clear that you or anybody else has any idea about how to bring them closer right. to vaccination. Well, and I'm not saying they may have a reasoned view that includes some misinformation in it, right? Or includes some innumeracy in it, right? So, but what I'm saying is like most of the people who express hesitancy to me, express it in terms of, I think my risk from this disease is really low. Here's a reason why I think that is. I'm younger, I'm fit, I'm, you know, I, um, you know, I know someone who got it and even though they got kind of bad, they went to a compound pharmacy and got ivermectin. Um, and why are the doctors not talking about that? Um, I myself, I mean, we, I know someone who got COVID very early and was treated with hydroxychloroquine and who felt it made a big difference and then had to watch as that drug became demonized. Uh, so people have gathered these impressions over, you know, 16, 17 months now, and they've, they've made this and, and they may be feeding that impression with something false they saw on Instagram or something they saw misinterpreted or a study that was retracted, you know, they, they, there, may be, there may be defects of information, but uh, in general, they, they can't, you're not gonna convince them if you say, you're just being unreasonable because their experience of this, their objection is not, 
I'm being an unreasoning person. Well, there's another factor that you haven't mentioned, <clears throat> which correlates, I think, closely with particularly the, the GOP side of this ledger. First of all, we talk about this in terms that are not especially helpful because we talk about it in, in racial and political terms. And I think those are particularly unhelpful. Um, but nevertheless, Kaiser Family Foundation poll out in June found that among the quote, wait and see population, which is very distinct from the definitely not will never get out of my face population um, is overwhelmingly uh, rural, which is yeah. a perfectly rational risk assessment on their part, the notion that they will encounter densely populated areas that represent a risk uh, factor for transmission is pretty low. So they make a rational, reasonable risk calculation. That poll also found that the status that was most correlative to not wanting to get the COVID vaccine is not wanting to get the flu vaccine. You're just generally not a vaccine kind of person. So while persuasion, and we can conclude roughly here that of the wait and see population, which is also less white and less Republicans, the, the partisan breakdown there is, is not, uh, it, uh, doesn't tell you anything about that population at all. Um, that persuasion is good, persuasion will work on the margins, but it'll only work on the margins, that's fine, that's important, but there's a population in the, in the political class that needs to accept the possibility that they will never vaccinate this fairly large subset of the population. And by talking about this in two different terms, the Republican side of the ledger, which is odious and contemptible and conspiratorial and paranoid, and the non-white side of the ledger, which has reasoned and rational concerns about the vaccine. Uh, this is the sort of thing that dominates the public discourse. And it's the sort of thing that people notice because it comes out of the same side of their mouth. I and mean, we're talking about this, these ex thoughts are expressed within the same breath. And we can't think that the people who are, who are vaccine hesitant are so dense that they don't notice the distinction, the tonal distinction when we talk about, when we engage in persuasion efforts. Well, yeah. and two other things to that point. One is that when, and I've had, debates with friends who are very left-leaning, very pro-vaccination, very pro-Biden administration policy on persuading everybody to get vaccinated. And they do frame it very distinctly when I raise the issue of, well, how are you dealing with, you know, communities that are Democratic Party constituents like African-Americans who are clearly very hesitant and, and don't want to get the vaccine? Uh, the response is, well, you know, there, as, as Noah says, there's a real issue and we're going to reach out and we're quite sure it's really not their fault. It's an equity issue. However, on the right, it's, you know, if you look at these GOP dominated states, this is a right wing political campaign now. And then they point to Tucker Carlson, et cetera, et cetera. What they don't speak to are, for example, I hear from a lot of young women who, as you said, are thinking about getting pregnant, who when you raise the issue uh, or public health officials raise the issue, they don't acknowledge what they don't know. And I think that those women could be persuaded if they said, this isn't thalidomide, for example, this is this is a different kind of, of uh, thing. And here's what we know, here's what we don't know, but the risk assessment is still here for you, for your age range, for where you live. They don't try, they don't say what they don't know. And given that, you know, as you, as you said, Michael, you know, 16 months ago, it was Kamala Harris and left-wing opinion makers who were raising, you know, concerns, asking a few questions about the safety of vaccines when they were being produced under the aegis of the Trump administration. I mean, not just raising concerns. Kamala Harris said in she September 2020, it. she would not trust a vaccine produced under the Trump administration. I, she, I, I, she, was, she was the vice presidential candidate uh, of the Democratic Party of the United States. I, I want to add to this um, point about the um, split in the way the one side of vaccine skepticism is talked about uh, uh, as opposed to the other. So you often hear this idea, 
in media, social media, that uh, Black Americans ha have this um, uh, understandable distrust of uh, American institutions um, because of the history of things like the Tuskegee experiments, syphilis experiments, you know, uh, you know, allowing uh, Black Americans to, to go untreated with syphilis to, to see what happens and all that. Um, now, I would argue that th those things, they're, they're obviously true and they're horrors, um, but those are part of the charges that are made by liberal media and academia against the US. I don't know that that, and so it's very easy for them to talk about what's going on in those terms. I don't know if you took, uh, you know, five average Americans of any color, of any ethnicity out there, and ask them about these things that they would that they would necessarily even be cognizant of them. So I, I would almost argue that there's right. some case for for saying that there's a pol there's a political stance that's been formed on the left about distrusting these vaccines um, that continues. Even if um, they were, right. though, even if they were cognizant of this history, as Odia says it is, to fear that outcome today, now, is as paranoid and conspiratorial as the people who think they're injecting chips into your bloodstream. But, well, but wait, okay. oh, go ahead, thing, Michael, oh, sorry. One thing, I mean, they pick those because they seem relevant, but they don't say, you never hear liberals say like, Oh, we have to be sensitive if there is um, Puerto Rican hesitance about these vaccines, because in the early 1960s, when we were experimenting with the pill, we killed a lot of Puerto Rican girls um, with the birth control pill or rendered them infertile. That's never brought up, right? So it's like, and that was more recent than most of the Tuskegee experiment, which finished up in the in 1972 officially, but the bulk of it, we're talking about the 30s and 40s and 50s. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's definitely liberal academics talking to themselves. Look, the, the, the world in which uh, medications, drugs, uh, pharmaceuticals that have gone through a decade of rigorous testing and then come under pressure uh, 20 years later, uh, uh, illegally, uh, with um, arguments being made that they are to blame for X, Y, or Z, including medical implants like silicone breast implants and stuff like that. That is a liberal democratic world. That's the tort bar. That is not the world of you know conservative deregulatory blah 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 government skepticism. The world of people who looked at from, from the 80s through relatively recently, I mean, I think it's not really the same as it was, but who looked at things that had gone through this insanely regulatory process, came out the other side and then were market and then were, became used. And then lawyers hunting for money Deter looked for patterns that they could bring before juries, uh, innumerate or you know scientifically illiterate juries that they could that they could get either uh, settlements because the companies wouldn't trust that the jury could understand the science or whatever. Um, 
that's that was a backbone of the Democratic Party's most important donor base, which was yeah. the tort bar. I mean, the tort bar, state by state by state, the tort bar was the single largest donor to Democratic Party politicians and Democratic Party causes for decades. Everything changed after Citizens United and various other things. But I mean, let's not, you know, if we're going to rewrite, if we're going to talk about the world of hesitancy about the efficacy of things created by pharmaceutical companies, that is not a right-wing delusion. That is, that is in, in, in the course of my lifetime, that is something that where you heard, uh, where you heard, where you heard that kind of thing was from the left, and where you heard people saying, "What are you talking about? This stuff is great." In fact, there's it's too regulated. Was the Wall Street Journal editorial page, which of course campaigned right. for, for, fought against Anthony Fauci in the '80s on the grounds that we needed to allow experimentation with AIDS drugs. Remember, I mean, this again, we're back, you know, Anthony Fauci was on the wrong side of the how to investigate, how to find a, a, a way for people to live with AIDS, or he was looking for a cure for AIDS. It turned out that there were mitigation strategies for AIDS, and he actually tried to throw roadblocks in that path for, for, for a decade. And it turned out that was the way to, we couldn't cure, we couldn't eliminate AIDS or eradicate AIDS but we could treat people with AIDS and their, their lives would continue and they wouldn't you know, die from Carposi's sarcoma. So this is a real thing that uh, people have conveniently forgotten. Not, yeah. by the way, that there isn't, that then you don't have a weird, holistic, libertarian world of vitamin takers that like Mel Gibson was one of these guys and all like, when they were going to say, oh, you can't just, you know, sell anything at GNC. Do you remember this? There was a whole thing where the FDA wanted to start regulating supplements. Yeah. And L. Gibson, before he started, you know, screaming about cops and Jews, uh, like put tens of millions of dollars into defending the rights of people to take whatever supplement they wanted to take. So there, I right. mean, it, there is, there is the stuff on both sides, but. Well, and, and, I think, though, we are seeing something, a turn, as as we've seen in a lot of these turns, where as people who you would classify as right-leaning or right-wing populists, as they feel um, or come to recognize uh, that all the major institutions of our society seemingly are dominated by progressives who hate them and who they don't and with whom they don't trust, you know, they, you know, one thing I will hear is like, well, you know, these pharmaceutical companies, like a, a vaccine that eventually gets added to the schedule for children, that's a huge moneymaker for them. So they have tons of interest to lobby. And now they're kind of like have a less oppositional relationship with the FDA, the FDA, like in it, ends up wanting to defend them. Uh, so we're not getting the real data. They're throwing out the real data, or at least I suspect they are, that there's there's this huge financial incentive for corruption on this matter. And so like as more kind of populist thinking comes into the right, that idea of the corruption of our institutions, I think uh, has a lot more power on the right 
like it used to have on the left. You know, we're talking about innumeracy. We're talking about statistics. We're talking about people needing to understand uh, the effect of, 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 of raw numbers on their lives. And that's why, once again, I'm going to tell you to pay attention to the product, the things produced by the Bonson Group, our friends uh, that uh, buy coastal financial management and services firm with $3 billion under management run by David Bonson. Uh, Every day in the dctoday.com and every week in the Dividend Cafe and DividendCafe.com, uh, David uh, crunches numbers. He crunches numbers macroeconomically. He crunch, he he did a lot of he's done a lot of work on COVID. Uh, he he tries to look at the interplay of politics and policy and how uh, the raw numbers are sometimes used and misused to make political arguments that are. Uh, macroeconomically foolish to stupid. Um, this is invaluable material for people who want to get a fresh look at uh, the overwhelming number of statistics that come out from the federal government that are very hard to tabulate and sort through. And David does it for you. Go to dividendcafe.com, sign up for dividendcafe.com and the dctoday.com. That's the Bonson Group the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management world. So um, my friend Dan Cass texts me this morning and says, why, aren't, why isn't the world blaming the Biden administration for its failures? Let me just read this. Uh, why aren't we blaming the Biden administration for failing to come up with creative and effective ways to overcome vax hesitancy? Isn't this a failure of imagination? And, you know, to be honest, so Biden's been president for uh, seven months. Um, uh, all we've been told is, boy, did he he really got a handle on this. And he really, you know, they calmed down and there's uh, they focused and Jeff Zients and Dandy Sleeced and all of these people um, are, you know, are just fantastic. And they're just doing such a great job. And it's focused and serious and all of this and um and you know i think we can literally tag the moment when vaccine hesitancy slammed into the uh overwhelming rush to get the vaccine uh with the decision to sort of uh to, the panic over johnson and johnson and this uh, eight cases of whatever it was, some mysterious heart disorder in out of 7 million people who had been vaccinated, eight out of 7 million. Um, that happened under the Biden administration's aegis. And obviously, you know, I really wonder like how, if there's a, if there's a coronavirus task force, like didn't that come up in the meeting of the task force, task force that afternoon before you know, the federal government made an announcement that they were suspending the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Did, did that go up the flagpole to the president of the United States on the most important issue facing the country? Or did it or didn't it? We have no idea. And and I think there is a really interesting case. because I think they did a good thing last week. They had Olivia Rodrigo, the biggest star in America right now, particularly among teenagers, had her at the White House to say you should get the vaccine. That was a good thing if you believe in getting the vaccine and particularly the teenagers. But um, what's their strategy? I mean, their strategy does seem to be to say Facebook is killing people, which is not a strategy. That is a, 
we don't know what to do. So we're just going to blame Facebook. Well, and that, uh, by the way, the Facebook comment comes after months of behind the scenes. It wasn't Facebook. It was social media. I mean, to social be fair, media, right. it didn't, but, you didn't say But behind the scenes, the Biden administration has been putting pressure on all the big tech platforms about misinformation in a way that should concern every free thinking American who, who wants to protect the First Amendment. Um, but I will say, look, I, it's an interesting question that you're asking, but we already know the answer. The Biden administration's approach has been we're the grownups, we're not Trump, so everything's fine. Meanwhile, they had Governor Cuomo, who'd killed almost more people than any anyone else who was in charge during the pandemic, as, as the head of their governor's task force. I mean, there wasn't any serious rethinking of the strategies that were used. It was just, the good guys are back in charge. No one needs to worry anymore. And I think that speaks to Michael's point in his excellent piece, which is the people who see that behavior but know the actual facts about what has happened throughout this pandemic, say, what's going on? Why should we trust these guys? Well, I would add that they have another big idea, which is to return to the mitigation measures status quo ante. <clears throat> when Michigan was having its spike, the CDC director put very public pressure on Gretchen Whitmer to reimpose restrictions um, circa 2020, uh, which she admirably declined to do. Uh, this week, the city of Los Angeles, county of Los Angeles, has reimposed its mask mandate, and the Surgeon General is out there applauding this move, saying it's absolutely necessary and important, which we can all anticipate will have the singular effect of masking up vaccinated people. In one of these, in in one of the places, the New York Times described as you know mostly upscale. Uh, places which are imposing these restrictions on, uh, on on shoppers, for example, quote, cafes, pastries, patisseries, I'm sorry, and brunch spots in Beverly Hills. I can't even pronounce the word, it's so upscale. Um, this is the sort of thing that will target people who are already vaccinated. And because there's a fair amount of uh, hesitancy in, in places that are a little redder in Los Angeles, there will be all the opportunities in the world for people who are unvaccinated to want to go maskless to just go patronize those places, to congregate amongst themselves, which will only exacerbate the problem that the White House is seeking to avert here. To the extent that the Biden administration has failed here, um, doesn't it confirm something that conservatives have always felt, which is that you can't govern behavior? You can't, you know, that, that this is... In fact, at the end of the day, not what the government is good at or for. Well, I that, think it can't compel behavior. I mean, obviously, conservatives like like liberals believe, believe, believe that government can do things to incentivize a good behavior, let's say, or behavior that we think is socially strong. That's why you have tax credits for kids or, you know, you, you futz around with the tax code to favor certain kinds of behaviors that you think are civilization enhancing as opposed to to others so i don't think conservatives it's only libertarians who think all of that is like is, is bad but having having said that i think what you can't do is um scold you you can't scold everybody into being to, into doing the right thing like you can't wag your finger at people uh, particularly if they are people who are not part of your team, and then assume that they are going to listen to you. Now, I don't know. This gets to the the ultimate point, I think, in relation to Michael's piece, which is we may have reached the limit of the public information campaign. That uh, and and that from here on in, all you're doing is exacerbating the tensions in the country when you can't actually convince people that what should happen is 
that they should get vaccinated. So they're, they either are, they're not. And if you start keep yelling at them and yelling at them and yelling at them, all you're doing is getting their backs up, getting the people who don't like them to like them even less and making the social compact in the country worse when you have no effectual way of securing your aim. And the other way of looking at this, and I just wanna point this out because we keep talking about this as though it's a grotesque failure. And the vaccination campaign is, should be looked at in a different way. I'm looking at the numbers today, okay? Americans 18 and up, and remember, we, we didn't even have vaccinations available to Americans younger than uh, 18 or younger than 16 until what? Uh, April, I think, or May, May. 18 and up. 60 as of today 68 percent have had at least one dose 60 percent 59 percent are fully vaccinated in the total population of the united states 56 percent have one dose 48 percent are fully vaccinated which means that in two weeks time the 18 and up number will be well over 70 percent and the fully vaccinated number will be well over 60 percent and the total population that has had at least one dose will be over 60 percent of everyone in the United States, that's 330 million people. That's like 200. This is a this is a phenomenal accomplishment. It's just that we have established a baseline that it's only it's only going to work as a matter of public policy if we achieve herd immunity solely as a result of the vaccination regime. Well, I think too that emotionally, that a lot of the people who got really upset with me and my piece is that um, emotionally they their victory is I want resistors and conservatives to say uncle like I want them to express like some level of submission to the expertise um, and that's also why they're focusing on Tucker Carlson right Trump saying take the vaccine a couple times in April and May that wasn't satisfying uh, enough uh, so I, I I don't know if it'll it'll ever come to them, you know. And it's 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 possible some of the the hesitant they're going to get you know they're going to get nature's vaccine, which maybe is more dangerous. But that so could be we, the know, we know we know we know that thirty six million people have gotten COVID in the United States, of whom six hundred and twenty thousand have died. Yeah. Thirty six million people, right? That's like twelve. 11% of the population has gotten COVID. We have, we are on track to having 60% of the, of the people who are really at risk, that is every, people over the age of 18, uh, will have been vaccinated. I don't even know what number that is. That's like, uh, you know, so we're, we're herd immunity, the number that was thrown around was 70% or 80% or 75%, whatever. If you add up the vaccinated and the people who've had COVID, you're getting close to the number we were told meant that we were going to achieve herd immunity. But we are turning, and this is the interesting question because I'm not sure why, we are in the process because we surrendered ourselves to this public health and media regime of understanding of how this works. We are turning what may be a colossal and fantastic success into something that looks like a failure. When Los Angeles County 
which had nine deaths or eight deaths the day that the public health officials announced that they were reimposing the indoor mask mandate for everybody, including the vaccinated. When they do that, they are saying it's not working. Well, whatever we did is not work. I don't know why. Maybe it's maybe it's people in Mississippi, but it's not working. What we promised you isn't working. That's insane. That when in the course of human events do you take a national mobilization in which you're going to be able to claim that more than 60% of the voting population of the United States agreed to do this thing voluntarily to do it and then say that it's a failure. Well, and it, and it fuels the cynicism and the skepticism that Michael was writing about among people who might be on the fence. And I mean, honestly, the I know public health folks can never bring themselves to say this, but they could just say a version of what we've kind of been arguing on the podcast for weeks now, months now, which is the risk is now entirely on the unvaccinated. They take it on themselves. They might get sick and die. We know that almost 100% of the people who are hospitalized for COVID now are are unvaccinated. You have you've seen on social media people who who are in their 30s and 40s get very sick and say, "I regret not getting the vaccine. Should have gotten it. Really, really kind of bummed I didn't, and now I'm quite sick." That's a public health message. It might or might not reach the people that we're still trying to reach with any sort of pro-vax message. But to but I I don't think it's it's in helpful at all, both to the already vaccinated and to try to reach those who aren't, to socially signal by putting on masks again. I mean, I'm not going to wear one, but these cultural battles, I think, make people dig in their heels, not rethink their their priors. Yeah, but you're not going to wear them. No. But a lot of people are going to wear them. I mean, people have started to wear them again around where I am on the East Coast without without benefit because and we're talking about vaccinated people stuff like that because here's what they know they know they hear well you know in israel there's some evidence if you got pfizer that it'll break through that the delta variant will break through pfizer israel's thinking of reimposing lockdowns they have almost no cases um the public health world likes lock likes locking down because it is a it is a simple triage measure, right? Here's how we have, we can, the, the absence of having everybody go and get vaccinated, put on a mask. We have, we have to do something and that's life. But they, <clears throat> they also like it <clears throat> because it's evidence that they're right. You know, it's like, see, see it told you, now, now we have to lock down, <clears throat> excuse me. Right. Well, you know, um, let me just pull back for a minute and talk to you about our second advertiser today, the ex-chair. Well, some of us are getting back to the office. Some of us find ourselves in a new normal at home. Future of work has changed. So is the future of seating. Ex-chair is at the forefront of home and office seating during this transition. And now ex-chair's newest innovation, LMAX temperature regulation. We'll take your seating comfort to a whole new level. Patent pending LMAX allows you to experience cooling heat massage in your low back. Feeling a bit warm this summer? Set your LMAX to cooling. The air conditioning in your home or office cranked up too high? Set your LMAX to heating. Warm up and soothe tired muscles. Feeling stressed from too many Zoom calls? Turn on LMAX massage therapy and relax. X-Chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar support was already best in class with incredible responsive low back support. Now with LMAX, your comfort is guaranteed. You won't believe the difference until you feel it for yourself. 
X chair LMAX delivers cooling heat and massage technology directly to your core, regulating body temp, helping increase blood flow, muscle recovery, and energy, all perks that making working from home or office a joy. Imagine regulating your body temperature and getting massage therapy while you're working. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR to save $100 off your order. X-CHAIR is a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWHEELS for free X-Wheel blade casters, xchaircommentary.com. I want to change things up and talk about uh, a really shocking and appalling uh, uh, thing that happened over the weekend. Um, a an old bugbear of mine and commentaries. Uh, Human Rights Watch executive director Kenneth Roth uh, came out with a series, a couple of tweets this weekend um, that reveal why it is that uh, this supposed leader of human rights activism uh, uh, in in the United States and on the planet Earth. Um, uh, someone uh, who is himself Jewish um, is one of the world's leading uh, voices, uh, apologists for um, anti-Semitism. Uh, I say that flatly. We published articles about him. Jonathan Foreman published an article about uh, the about uh, Kenneth Ross uh, anti-Israel stance on Twitter in 2014. We published other things about him by Seth Mandel, uh, even in our, uh, one of our, our most recent issue about uh, the behavior, in this case of the Anti-Defamation League, but also including Kenneth Roth. But um, Kenneth Roth just exposed himself uh, without question. Um, Here's what, he, here's what he said, quote, anti-Semitism is always wrong. And it long preceded the creation of Israel, but the surge in UK anti-Semitic incidents during the recent Gaza conflict gives the lie to those who pretend that the Israel, Israeli government's conduct doesn't affect anti-Semitism. So uh, Israel, there are anti-Semitic hate crimes in the UK, and you got to blame it on the Israeli government. See, that affects anti-Semitism. So uh, he says this, and people go crazy and say, are you out of your mind? What's the matter with you? You're disgusting. How dare you? And his response is interesting how many people pretend that this tweet justifies anti-Semitism. It doesn't. And I don't under any circumstances. Rather than address the correlation noted in the Haaretz article, which he linked to, to in the original tweet, between is recent Israeli government conduct in Gaza and the rise of UK anti-Semitic incidents. The author of the article himself, Sam Sokol, went on Twitter and said, I didn't say that at all. My piece is not at all about how, about how the two are linked, uh, except, you know, except in the way that anti-Semitic hate crimes uh, are apologized for by exactly the methodology that Kenneth Ross Kenneth Roth used here. So I just wanted to uh, mention this because, um, you know, there may be people within the sound of my voice who donate to Human Rights Watch. There are good people who work at Human Rights Watch. Uh, Human Rights Watch has done good work, particularly on Hong Kong and China freedom and stuff like that. But uh, the egregiousness of this cannot be denied. 
The behavior of Kenneth Roth cannot be accepted. If he remains uh, as the executive director of Human Rights Watch, uh, people should not give it money. Uh, it, should be, it should be cut off um, if you haven't done it already. Uh, and uh, there should even be a campaign to, to do this. Abe, you have any thoughts? Well, <clears throat> I mean, you know, it's a despicable thing he wrote and it's, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry. <clears throat> um, but, you know, what occurs to me is, well, of course, it's no secret that anti-Semites cite things that happen in Israel as justification for their anti-Semitism. So what? Like that, that is not, how is that the responsibility of, of anything that happens, of anyone in Israel and anything that happens in Israel? Yes, of course, they, bigoted people make faulty connections to justify their bigotry. Yeah, it's also not, the point here is you may be mad at what Israel does, then if you go out and you commit a crime against a Jew, right? It doesn't matter what the, it doesn't matter what your motivation is. I mean, your your motivation for committing a hate crime is 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 a is a is a sociological data point. It has it, it's the opposite of a justification, actually, morally, right. if you think about it. You know, and if, but if if you boil it down to a principle, wouldn't it be that, hey, if we really want to stop anti-Semitism in this world? the onus is really on the Jews to stop existing because as soon as they stop existing, people will stop hating them. I mean, sadly, it, it, only, by the way, it, that, you know, there is, there are these interesting phenomena in the world, which is the anti-Semitism without Jews phenomenon. I mean, I'll give you two examples of it. One is Poland. Poland became almost Judenrein after World War II for obvious, horrible, nightmarish reasons. And uh, there were, I don't know, there were, 10,000 Jews left in Poland or something like that. And there was a rash of anti-Semitic incidents. Uh, there have been over the course of the decades um, because you don't need Jews around to remain anti-Semitic um, because anti-Semitism is, a, is, a, is an ideology. It's not, it doesn't, it doesn't require, you know, and then of course the Arab world, which became entirely Rhine, and then just simply focused its hatred on Jews on the country in its midst, as opposed to the Jews in their midst, since they expelled expelled all the Jews. But in this case, I just think we are we are we have reached a point at which the expo Kenneth Ross exposure uh, as a Jewish anti semite um, is now uh, inarguable. I don't know how anyone can argue that what he said is justifiable, um, and we'll see uh, what what happens from there. And uh, you know, with it's, that, it, let me just uh, let me just yeah, go ahead. Well, it, it strikes me that it's sort of, you know, the opposite of what's the messaging around the rise in um, Asian, anti-Asian hate crime in the U.S. Don't blame Asians for uh, the virus, for the actions of China. Um, that is sort of, you know, that's no justification for bigotry, right? Um, when you have Ken Roth saying, I'm not really saying this, but you see there is kind of a justification here for bigotry in the actions of Israel. I mean, the Asian right. thing kind of goes a little bit further than that, even. There was a period in which it was considered a little gauche to criticize Beijing, because that could lead to anti-Asian hate crimes in the streets. Um, as faulty as that logic is, there's no one who would even dare apply it to the Israeli government and American Jews, for example, or Jews worldwide. 
Right now, let me talk I, to you about our. our uh, let me just uh, let me just move on. And we no, Michael, go ahead, go ahead. Because can I ask you a question as the not as the I, I don't know the goy toy in the podcast? Um, the um, so what is the explanation though for why European countries that are almost Judenrein themselves still, um, when Israel you know does something that is deemed an outrage in their media? You know, people whose roots in Europe go back centuries, millennia, come out into the streets and protest at the Israeli embassy. This is a, really a unique thing. Like, th this doesn't happen when uh, Turkey goes after the Kurds. Um, this doesn't happen when, for Saudi Arabia, for things happening in Yemen. It's just Israel for what's happening in the West Bank. And it's, it, there is like a, you know, it just, this is something that cries out for uh, explanation uh, to me. Like I, I've tried to explain it to myself as like, well, maybe there's this, this World War II hangover where Europeans uh, and cosmopolitan white people around the world said, oh, the lesson of World War II is we're against ethno-nationalism and we're against religious chauvinism. And, and so Israel being in some ways an ethno state is the wrong response or a perverse response. I, I, but I don't get it because, I mean, Recep Erdogan campaigns for Turkish votes in European countries, and yet Europeans can't deign to notice his foreign policy. Um, well, I think I think I think the answer is the answer is that you know anti-Semitism is 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 and as I said, is an ideology. And what is interesting about it is that there was a period of about 20 years when it was all but unspeakable after, after World War II and the revelations of the camps and the, the, the effort to extirpate Jews from the earth. Um, and then uh, the, the, the Jewish state started to defend itself and uh, in defending itself, it started raising all kinds of uncomfortable questions about, uh, it was one thing to feel bad for the Jews when the Jews were on their last legs and had been this uh, horribly victimized people. And then it was another to deal with the fact that there was a determination among the remnant uh, of European Jewry and others um, uh, not to have it happen again, and to and to and to and, and to establish a permanent uh, home, uh, the necessity for which had been just proved by what had right. happened, and so um, it turns out that the y Europeans, as long it's the classic thing, as long as Jew uh, Dara Horn has written a book that is coming out in September called "People Love Dead Jews." Uh, and that is a thing. Like it's one thing to 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 mourn and cry and get upset about the terrible things that have happened to Jews, but Jews who stand up and defend themselves um, raise uncomfortable questions about uh, about what you're to think about them when they're not victims. And and Europeans like their Jews as victims and don't like them as fully fled, full fledged members of the international community with all the same rights uh, to self-defense and all the same controversy, as you say, sort of, and behaviors that maybe are worthy of criticism, but would only be worthy of criticism to the extent that other countries that do similar things in similar ways 
should be worthy of criticism. And then, of course, you have the ultimate internal problem, which is that while they don't like ethnostates and they do believe, I think, what, what you say, that that is the elite opinion, a lot of these countries have surprisingly large internal Muslim populations and the political systems in them are very keen to um, keep them pacified and, uh, and, and to make them not angry at the, at the governments that rule them. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, in Britain, you have, I don't know, you have 450,000 Jews or 500,000 Jews left in Britain. And I think 10 times that number of Muslims, like Muslims outnumber Jews in Britain 10 to 1. In the United States, uh, Jews outnumber, uh, you know, Arab Muslim. Anyway, I think um, 3 to 1 or 2 to 1. So that, that's the one place in the world that that is still, that is, that, that is the case. Anyhow, let me just uh, go from this deep conversation to talk to you about HR management. Bambi, when running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and HR manager salaries aren't cheap. An average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, maintain your compliance, all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Dedicated HR manager available by phone, email, or real-time chat. All for just $99 a month, month to month, no hidden fees. Cancel anytime. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time in HR compliance. Let Bambi help. Get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash commentary, spelled B-A-M to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. Um, guys, Politico has a piece out. Second time this year, there has been a forensic audit of the mistakes made in polling in 2020. Originally, there was one among Democrats, specifically Democratic firms, and now there is one sort of being done by the, you know, the world of cephalogy or whatever, whatever, you know, uh, phrenological term you want to put to make polling seem like a science. Um, and basically, uh, they've looked at this and they've said, you know what, the uh, 2020, despite what you heard from Nate Silver and others, it was even worse than you think was even worse. Not only was the presidential polling bad, in every state the polling was bad, in the Senate races the polling was bad. And then they say, oh, well, we just don't, it's impossible to understand. It's impossible to understand. We don't know why. We don't know, we can't really know why because we don't know, we can't know why, what people thought who didn't answer our questions. And so their people answer our questions and then uh, we use their data and we try to we do, do what we can to, to, to fix it in case we don't have enough Republican respondents or whatever. But we, we, we don't know why, they, why they're doing what, what they're not doing. And um, I think it's very, and, and then they say, well, it can't just be Trump, shy Trump voters, right? Which was the Susquehanna polling theory, right? It can't just be shy Trump voters because it wasn't just people not saying they didn't want to vote for Trump the errors in the Senate races were even worse in some of these cases, right? The one where Lindsey Graham uh, looked like um, this guy, Jamie Harrison was in three of Lindsey Graham. He lost by 13. I mean, there were over, to over and over. It's, it's um, uh, Susan Collins won by nine. And I think they were tied or Sarah Gideon was ahead of her. Were, 
state by state by state. So it's like, so it's like, who, who can understand it? Well, I think it's very simple. The answer is it's not shy Trumps. It's shy conservatives or it's conservatives have decided I am not playing in your sandbox. In fact, I'm going to try to screw up your sandbox or I'm going to, I don't care. And, uh, that is an unsolvable problem. That is an unresolvable and unsolvable problem. Because if the, if I'm right, and I think that is the only answer, when you say, "Oh, gee, we can't possibly understand why it is," why it, every piece is well, wrong. But as you said, summarizing the the problem here on their parts is that we can't understand what these people are thinking because they won't talk to us. The problem is they won't talk to us, right? It's not just that they're when they do talk to us, they're giving us misleading responses or answering a silly, you know, get, answering a, a silly question with a silly answer, um, which is a real phenomenon. But I don't, I don't imagine that that would be pronounced enough to skew these results. It's merely that their model doesn't account for the lack of responses that they're generating from the right. But you, I don't think you can see, ultimately, you can only correct in that way if the universe of people you're talking to really does reflect the electorate as a whole, um, what they learned, if they were off by four and five points nationally and locally, then uh, the, the, the universe of people they're talking to bears very little, you can't, what are you going to do? Just, I mean, that's what Susquehanna did. That's, it, was, it wasn't Susquehanna. I'm using the wrong firm. It was that firm in the South. I can't remember the name of it. Anyway, uh, the one that wouldn't tell you their ideology, but basically it appeared that they were just adding five points to Trump's total uh, in state after state. Um, Michael, you remember he, that, that you, you know that guy. Uh, oh, Robert Cahalli. Trafalgar. Yeah, Cahalli, right. Trafalgar. Trafalgar. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, <laughs> Michael, as a, so I know you're not a, this is, you know, you're more a big think guy and not a, you know, uh, the polling stocks guy, but, um, but what do you make this? Like, I, I just, it seems to me like they're, they're basically saying we got to go out of business. This is not a solvable circumstance. It's not solvable. I think you're right. Essentially it's, it's conservatives don't want to play the game. I think it's maybe a larger decomposition of, you know, the American center or trust in institutions, you know, maybe you you could solve it if conservative people felt they were more represented in institutions, in media, in polling firms. I, you know, I don't know, um, but that's not going to happen. <laughs> you know, so I just see the the problem getting worse. I happen to think that this affects lots of polls, um, and maybe even pollsters are bringing it on themselves. Like you used to have, I always think of during. Uh, you know, six, seven years ago, uh, PPP, which was a kind of democratic aligned polling firm, you know, they did this question um, to Republicans, would you accept refugees from Agrabah, which is the... Was it refugees or was it bombing? Because that was... Yeah, they were asked about bombing Agrabah, which is the, the fictional place from Aladdin. Yeah. And Republicans were like, yeah, let's bomb Agrabah, you know, and um, uh, that made Republicans look stupid, Michael, in case you need reminder. Right. Well, that's the that's exactly it, though, is that um, 
you're seeing more and more of these yes, no questions where you're putting an anonymous conservative or Republican in a position to either appear to lend credence to a democratic narrative or an idea or look stupid and, but at least look Republican. And I've always said like, you know, if you call me up and said like, is governor Cuomo a member of an alien race of lizard people sent to govern you, or is he just a humane guy? <laughs> it's like, okay, well, <laughs> he's a lizard guy. Obviously I would say that. <laughs> And so like when you're seeing like polls, like, you know, big one out today that's being thrown in my face with a big facts, don't care about your feelings side dish is, oh, you know, um, 20% of people who are dead set against getting the vaccine say there are microchips in it. And it's like, well, you know, did you give them like five or six options that were more reasonable to explain their opposition before you went to microchips or was this it? Like, you're either believe there's microchips or you're kind of for the vaccine. Because if you if you if you're forcing them that choice and they're anonymous, they're going to say microchips are in it. And this is, um, you know, it's illustrative it's, of your point from the beginning of the podcast that it's much easier to not understand these people to deliberately attempt to render them caricatures so that you can comprehend where they're coming from. Because otherwise you you simply don't. I mean, the notion here that they're making a rational risk calculation is anathema to you. So it's much easier to just imagine them as unthinking, brutish uh, idiots who are beholden to a series of conspiracy theories. Well, it, it would also require you possibly as like a conventional liberal or or, you know, a conservative to admit to yourself, maybe like, maybe I trust the authorities, you know, Maybe I just trust the authorities more. So I didn't think about these questions with this kind of suspicion and curiosity, right? Like, you know, one thing, one thing that was brought up to me and, and I'm sneaking this in on you and I'm sorry to do that, but I think it's worthwhile was the J&J &J vaccine pause, right? There was a pause to deal with a very particular kind of blood clot issue. And the reason for the explained pause was this particular rare blood clot issue, if you treated it like a normal blood clot, you risk killing the patient. So you, you, we have to say that this is this potentially rare kind that you have to treat in almost the exact opposite way of a normal blood clot. Okay, that all sounds reasonable, but like to a suspicious mind that's back skeptical, they're gonna say, wait, so, all this other blood clot data I'm seeing on your vaccine adverse event reporting site, are, are you even like paying attention to that? Like, do I get to know about that? Or do you just let the doctors treat that as normal? And um, it kind of goes under the radar because it can be solved if that, if that happens. Because I want to know if there's going to be a blood clot issue. Um, and, you know, but I think for most conventional liberals, they say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm trusting the recommendations. I'm trusting the data that's out there and that's fine. And maybe you're smarter for doing that. Maybe that's the right thing for you to do. It probably is for most people, but you know, that would admit, that would be an admission that these decisions are made with a social component that's not strictly rational. That's not strictly your own process of reasoning, right? It's rational. Trust can be rational, 
but that's not necessarily the reasoning process itself. I would add that that, uh, that Agrabah question harkens back to a, a better time. Michael will surely disagree. But when uh, the, you know, the neocon worldview was much more ascendant on the right than it is today. <laughs> and, and, you know, on a slightly more serious note, nevertheless, you know, though it's a joke, <clears throat> it, it boils down to a certain level of, of trust in your political authorities and to understand that your political authorities do have, you know, your, your best interests at heart, which is definitely no longer present, particularly on the right in the coalition, in the Republican coalition, but it's pronounced all over the place. Oh, it's totally pronounced on the on the left. I mean, people certainly had no sense that the government would be trusted. 2016 and 2020, if you were not a Trump voter. And so that is a whether or not you think that's, you know, justified or borne out by by actual facts is fine. But I mean, we live in a we live in a low trust time, but I think ultimately the thing about polling isn't just that it's low trust; it's that uh, people are calling up people and they're hanging up or they're not answering the phone when they don't see what it is. And this ultimately then gets as a technical question, just to finish up this point, that polling may not work because it is dependent on a on a na- the nature of a of 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 a human behavior that is gone which is that uh everybody calls your cell phone and if you don't know the number of the person you're calling you don't answer it anymore that's just a simple fact i mean maybe i'm using you know elite i'm an elite person so i do this but you know if you get 20 phone calls at home and at your on your cell phone and you now are you now literally get to a point where you only answer a phone number that you recognize because they're all junk and it's all, it could be a Chinese voice said, telling you something or someone saying, this is the bank. <laughs> you know, we are interested in avoid- talking to you about your mortgage rate, press three, <laughs> you know? And so you know this, you don't answer the phone. People aren't answering the phone for pollsters. The people who do answer the phone for pollsters are weird. What I'm talking about is normal, rational behaviors. Don't answer the phone when it's not a number you see. Now, if you're like a sort of person who wants to talk to a pollster for 20 minutes, you're weird. You're not the normal person. You're not normal. You're not the reflective of the American people. You're sitting at home. Fine, it was during a pandemic last year. The response rates were so high. But you like, you want to talk to a pollster for 20 minutes? Don't you have something better to do? It's peak TV time. Or you're you know, an activist. You watch- yeah. Or you're an activist. Or you can watch, but you can watch Love It or List It, or you can talk on the phone to a pollster for 20 minutes, what are you, what are you going to do? Michael Brennan Doherty, author of My Father Left Me Ireland. Wonderful book. Go to Amazon. Download it. It's beautiful and it's short. It's both beautiful and short. What a great combination. <laughs> really? I mean, I'm not like saying to you, you got to download this book and then read 500 pages. It's like compact. It's, um, it's, it's, it's got punch and you can get through it, like, you can get through it fast. It's it's the Oksana Bayul of memoirs. Short, beautiful. Um, anyway, thank you for joining us, and, uh, and please return to your status as the Notorious MBD this week <laughs> on you. the editors. Uh, and for Abe, Christine, and Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. Thank you.